Good morning, Grace Presbyterian. It is good to be with you guys. As Mark may have said, I actually don't know. I'm recording this a week before. I don't know how he's going to introduce me or anything. He could really, he could insult me or who knows? Good thing I trust that guy. Uh, I am Andrew Barber. I'm a teacher at the Stony Brook School. Uh, I've had the honor of preaching to you guys several times in the past. Uh, so some of you recognize me. Uh, I teach at the Stony Brook School and this is the Stony Brook School. Welcome to my classroom. I know you've always wanted to go back to high school, so here you are. I'm also sitting down while preaching, which is a first for me, but with the camera, it felt the most natural. So, difficult times. Uh, it's an honor to be with you guys. Um, I know that uh, COVID-19 has created a lot of difficult situations for a lot of people, and one of the things that's been weird, of course, is worship. Sundays have been odd not going to church, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do something like this. But sometimes it just reminds me again of how much I miss the real thing. That being said, I hope we don't miss the opportunity to, to learn some of the lessons that are in store for us. I've noticed that my wife and I have become much more comfortable leading our sons in prayer. We have three sons, Murray, George, and Wendell. Leading our sons, not just in prayer, but in singing together. Um, we've taken out instruments and gotten a little better at that and those kinds of things. And so I think rightly we've remembered our role as a family in leading our kids in worship. Uh, and I, I think there are lessons like that out there for a lot of us um, to remember what our our role and our obligation is before God as we come and worship. So while uh, this is frustrating and awkward, and I cannot wait to be back with a full congregation, I don't want to miss either the opportunity to grow closer to God in certain ways that are laid out for us. I don't know what the situation has been like for you guys in your church um, at the Sunnybrook School. I know there's some teachers at Grace Presbyterian, and I'm sure you went through similar things that we've gone through. We have had to quickly, of course, we moved our entire curriculum online very quickly. We're a boarding school, so there have been a lot of really tough uh, weeks in terms of getting students off campus, isolating the students who are here, taking a an environment that's built for building community and turning it into a community for isolation. It's really heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Necessary, but heartbreaking. We've done all those things. We're still you know, packing up students' rooms because they thought they would be back I walk through dorms and see signs that say, you know, see you in two weeks. Um, it's tough stuff. Uh, and I know that everyone has versions of those kinds of stories right now. So uh, praying for you guys. I don't know where you're at exactly and what you're going through, but I expect that, like my situation and some members of my family, that it's been really hard for some of you. Uh, so I'm grateful that we can go to God's word for encouragement together. So I've chosen uh, John 17, 6 through 19, if you want to flip there in your Bibles. It may initially seem like an odd passage for the current moment. I can think of other passages that would maybe fit this a little better, the current moment in time, James 1, some things like that about suffering. This, this one's a little different. Uh, this is Jesus' final words to his disciples before he is crucified. 
But I think actually in there, if you'll hang with me, you'll see how it is a helpful reminder for the current moment. So this is John 17, 6 through 19. The disciples are nervous because Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you guys. I'm going to die. They weren't big fans of those kinds of things that Jesus would say. Let's take a look. Read it together. John 17, 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the ways you've preserved all of us. I think of how you have taught us gratitude for little things. How much human contact has meant in the last few weeks. How much meals have meant and father we thank you for your constant provision for us please be with us help us not to lose sight of those who do not have the things we have help us to be acutely aware of those who are suffering of food banks that are running low of charities that need our help of people in our own congregation that need our help Open our eyes to opportunities to serve, and may we take them. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, a movie came out recently called A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. Uh, it's an arty film. It's one of those that I wouldn't recommend for everyone. But it's an interesting subject. It is a true story based on the life of Franz Jägerstadter. And Franz Jägerstadter uh, was a faithful, believing Christian in Austria during World War II. And he was, at one point, uh, conscripted to join the Nazi cause to fight for the Germans in World War II. But his conscience would not allow him to do this. And he wrestled with this a lot, he prayed about it, but just ultimately felt like, I don't think God wants me to do this. I don't think I can fight for their cause. He went to the church leaders of the day looking for help in making that decision uh, and instead found them basically saying, eh, let's just be quiet and do what they expect us to do. Well, when he finally showed up uh, to begin his training or to be 
sent out into combat. Instead of jumping into line, he said, listen, my conscience won't allow me to do this, but I, I will serve as a paramedic if you'll allow me to do that. Well, the answer was a resounding no. And in August of that year, he was guillotined for his crimes against the state. Now, it's an interesting story to me. I'm endlessly fascinated with Franz Jägerstadter for a variety of reasons. Mainly, there's no reason for him to have made the decision he made apart from the love of God. He had nothing to gain. He had a family. On all accounts, he had a really happy marriage, several children. But he had no community supporting him in this decision. His entire neighborhood uh, was a village was against him making this decision, like radically against him. His church leaders were against him. His wife initially was hesitant and not sure he was making the right decision. He didn't have anyone backing him up. I think if you look at most radical political moves or religious moves or any of those over the last forever, people usually have at least some group getting their back that they meet with. That encourages them on to that action, that they know there's somebody proud of them. Franz didn't have that. He also wasn't leading a cult. You know, he didn't have some group looking to him as a spiritual leader. He didn't get any special revelation from God with new information about how to live. There was no hedonistic benefit for him doing these things. He was completely alone when he made that decision. And I don't believe it was masochistic. I don't believe he was looking for suffering. I don't believe he was looking for martyrdom. I think his offer to be a paramedic was a way of compromising, attempting to compromise. It wasn't, well, it's my, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, he was trying to find a way to cooperate and could not do it. And lastly, that old refrain, well, history will judge me rightly. I don't believe he had any reason to think that. In fact, uh, after the fact, things went so poorly for him. Um, like after his death, things went so poorly for his family and his own reputation. Uh, the villagers, even after World War II, even after the Nazis lost, hated his family and him for that decision that he had made. Uh, one quote says from a historian, Franz had no reason to think that even his neighbors would ever think of him as anything but a misguided traitor. And turns out that was the case. So the point is, he had absolutely no reason to move forward into martyrdom outside of believing that there was a God who loved him and who would judge him correctly. He proved that old phrase from Thomas Aquinas that in a just society, virtuous men are saints, and in an unjust society, they are martyrs. Franz Jaeger's daughter was a virtuous man in an unjust society. And as a result, he was martyred. I think Franz Jägerstadter would have understood this passage that Jesus uh, tells his disciples. And ultimately, the disciples would come to understand it too. The disciples, like Franz Jägerstadter, would for the most part give their lives for Christ. Eleven of the twelve are, are martyred uh, outside of Judas, Matthias replaces Judas, 11 of the 12 are martyred, and the 12th is exiled. Based on church history, this is what we feel like is true. The disciples would have 
experienced the same thing Franz was going to, and they would have all known when Jesus said, we're in the world, and the world hates us, they would have known what that meant. And that is really the gist of this passage and can be applied to us as well. We are in the world, and the world hates us. Now, this might alarm you at first, and I know it bothers me initially. We are in the world, and the world hates us. I, I have some... Uh, I'm uncomfortable with that line of reasoning for three big reasons. Uh, firstly, my neighbor doesn't hate me. I know many people who are not Christians in my own family, my students nearby. I have many cordial, beyond cordial, great relationships with people who are not Christians. They do not seem to hate me. In fact, I would say that many non-Christians seem more moral than a lot of the Christians I know. Maybe even more giving, charitable, all those kinds of things. So what is this? The we're in the world, the world hates us. That bothers me. And I, I'm right now especially very sensitive to tribalism. And this seems to be promoting a type of tribalism. So that's the first reason this might make you uncomfortable. The second reason is I know we've all seen Christians try to do good things um, poorly, right? Like bad evangelism, bad service, those kinds of things. And when they get pushback, blame it on persecution. Oh, well, the world hates us, so... I don't have to rethink my approach or try to be more tactful. This is just how it is. Jesus told me they would hate me, right? So you can avoid those things. You can even blame hate of the world for deserved suffering, right? You can make a foolish decision. And instead of evaluating yourself, saying, well, this is persecution. That's just what happens. So that makes me uncomfortable. And lastly is uh, the persecution that I face, that you face, just does not compare to what Christians say in Egypt are facing. When an Egyptian Christian walks into church, their life expectancy goes down. They have very, it is a very live option to think, I'm probably going to be martyred for my attachment to Christianity. Every Sunday, every Sabbath day, when they put on their clothes to go to church, I'm sure it runs through the mind, is this the safest thing to do? Is this the best thing to do? And so lastly, I'm like, does this passage apply to us at all? <clears throat> well, those are a lot of great questions you've asked. Well done. But I think we can start here. I want to start by answering, why did the world hate Jesus and his disciples? Because I think if we answer that question, we can begin to answer all the rest. Why did the world hate Jesus and his disciples? It's really simple. <clears throat> The world hated Jesus and his disciples because they proclaimed that Jesus was king. That's it. They proclaimed that Jesus was king. What was Franz Jägerstadter saying when he said, I would like to be a paramedic? Why did the state respond so negatively to that? It seems like a reasonable compromise, except at the root of what he's saying was, there's something greater than the state that I answer to. It's not just you. What was Martin Luther King Jr. saying in his uh, speeches and his sermons and his messaging? He was saying, there's a bigger authority than tradition, than the structures of the world that we've built up. We answer to God. We need to strive to treat everyone as if they are in his image. What did Daniel in the Old Testament, what was he saying when he went to his room to pray 
even after the emperor had said, no more praying. He was saying that there is a king that I answer to that's higher than all the kings you guys serve and answer. And when we make those claims, there is only anger. Will everyone hate us? No. But part of what Jesus is saying is that the world's priorities and the world's structures are often set against God's kingdom. As John Milton put it in his, uh, sorry, English teacher, got to do it. John Milton in his famous poem, Paradise Lost, this is not in the Bible, but it's a great phrase. Uh, he writes about Satan and has his version of Satan says this line, better to reign in hell than submit in heaven. Better to reign in hell than submit in heaven. Or as Frank Sinatra might have put it, I did it my way, right? And if we look culturally, we can see that line running through. I mean, that's basically what happens with Adam and Eve in the garden, yes? Is God offers them a way to him, a way to live. And Satan says, ah, do you really want to submit to that moral order when you could run the moral order? You could decide what's right you could decide what's wrong. You don't have to answer to anybody. Just eat this fruit. You could be like God. You could say what the right thing is. That is the heart of the rebellion against God. And as we look out on the world, all across the political spectrum in America, we see these phrases. You know, it's, it's my body. It's my life. It's my family. It's my house. It's my whatever. Fill in the blank. We see this sensibility. And essentially what it's saying is there are parts of my life that don't submit to anything but me. And that's it. And I want to say that when that shows its head, that is the rebellion against God's kingdom that Jesus is talking about. The priorities of the world are ultimately that there is some corner that's mine and I'm not going to let anybody else have it or touch it. The moral authority of God is offensive. I promise we're getting to the passage, but this is, I think we have to grasp this, what that rebellion looks like for this passage to make sense, if you look through the last 200 years of theology even, what are the parts that people have tried to remove from the Christian message? Typically, people are very comfortable with Christians doing good things for the community. And that's great. That is that is legitimately good. But it's when you start throwing that Jesus thing around, when you start saying that he's king, that there's somebody we should bow down before. There have been whole lines of theology that the whole purpose was to remove the offensive parts of the Gospels out. And what are those offensive parts? They're the parts where Jesus proclaims authority over nature with his miracles, where he proclaims authority over nature's laws with his miracles, when he proclaims authority over our moral lives, our sexual lives, our monetary lives, right? Uh, when he proclaims authority over our souls, when he proclaims authority over death, when he says that he is king, these are the things where like, uh, I'm... I'm fine with Christians serving and doing all that, but ah, don't talk about that Jesus stuff. Keep that stuff to yourself. That's the stuff that's offensive. Some of you may be aware of the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks you know questions for kids to learn. And question number one is basically, to whom do I belong? Body and soul, I belong to Jesus Christ. That's it. We as Christians are people who submit to the king. That's what it means. And insofar as we say that, insofar as we move out into the world proclaiming that kingship, 
eventually we're going to run into tension. People are not going to want to hear what we're selling. And that can be disheartening to know that the structures of the world are against that message, even though it is true. But we can take heart as we look at this passage for three reasons. And we're going to look at it quickly. Uh, one, Jesus has continued what God has started. Two, Jesus intercedes for us. And three, Jesus has been consecrated for us. So firstly, Jesus has continued what God started. If we look in six through eight, Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus is saying something simple. The disciples would have been concerned. Hey, when you're gone, is this, is this over? Is this over? Is, was this a good run? Our three years with you? And Jesus is saying, listen, God has begun a good work that he is going to complete. I am an extension of God's mission in the world. I'm the direct representation of God. When I say I love you, it means that God loves you. Jesus is not a rogue agent. Some people have said, oh, Old Testament God, really different from New Testament Jesus. And this has created some tension. I would argue that that is not true and that you've probably avoided certain passages about Jesus in the New Testament and avoided certain testament passages about God in the Old Testament to come to that conclusion. But what Jesus is saying here is, that God is the one who is doing these things, that God and Jesus are perfectly in sync. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the direct representation of God. There is no situation in which Jesus shows you empathy and God does not, right? You don't have to wonder what God thinks of you. And I also think that it's really encouraging to think about God doing a work in us even before we come to Christ. I know that as uh, at Stony Brook School, we have lots of different types of students. Uh, and I can think of kind of two different types. One, uh, we'll get students who've never heard of the name of Jesus before. It's completely foreign to them. But it is amazing how frequently you can find that God has been laying the groundwork to, for that student to hear and receive the name of Jesus. I could go testimony on testimony of students who uh, particular virtues, particular vices have stood out to them. They've begun to have a moral understanding that fits perfectly into place with the message of Jesus. And you can tell, and it's humbling, this wasn't because of something we did. God had been mapping out this whole person's life to end up at this point. Another type of student we frequently get is, say, from Europe, uh, a student who maybe has been surrounded by images of a strong religious background, but not met any religious people. Uh, they've seen the cathedrals, they've seen the imagery of Christ and those kinds of things. And when they come and they begin to hear about Jesus and see people who are passionate about him, it's like all of those things kind of click into place and begin to take on this meaning. It's like the ground was fertile and was waiting. God is someone who is working on us, working on us, preparing us for the message of Christ. They are not separate. 
right? You don't have to wonder what God thinks of you. You can look to Christ, which leads us to our second point. So Jesus says, take courage, disciples. I'm going to leave you, but I've continued what God has started. And secondly, Jesus intercedes for us. He intercedes for the disciples. If we look at 9 through 12, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. That's interesting. We'll come back to it. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, there are two parts of this, one comforting, one alarming. And we'll look at the comforting one first. Firstly is Jesus' intercession for us. Look at how Jesus speaks about the disciples. Not that long ago. We can go back to the previous chapter. Jesus is basically looking at the disciples and saying, Yeah, you guys don't got it. O ye of little faith. And now he turns to God and says, They have kept my word. The disciples are a lot like us, aren't they? Uh, Jesus says, Watch and pray, and they sleep. Jesus says, Lose your life to gain it, and we cling to success and all those other kind of things. Jesus says, follow me, and we say, I don't know. Jesus says, do not deny me, and we say, I never knew the man. We are a lot like these struggling disciples. And Jesus, I, I wondered forever, is, is the gospel just pretend like I'm a mess, but we're just going to pretend like I'm righteous before God? Is that what it is? That's not the gospel. The gospel is firstly that the righteousness of Christ covers us objectively. When God looks at us, we are covered in Christ's righteousness. But secondly, this doesn't mean Jesus just turns a blind eye to our sins, right? Jesus looks, he sees the full entirety of the disciples and their failures. He faces them all the time. He's constantly working on those failures with them which is comforting in a way. They didn't have to hide their failures from Jesus. We don't have to hide our failures from God. He sees them. It's ridiculous to do that. He is working with us on them. But he looks at those failures and immediately turns to God and says, these are the ones who kept my word. Because these are also the disciples who said, you have the word of life. To where else can we go? Where else can we go? So this is the intercession of Christ, right? He looks at us who love him but struggle and fail. He sees our failures. He works with us on those failures. He turns to God and he's like, these are my people. These are the ones who have kept my word. Hebrews, uh, humor me for a second. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is one of my favorite passages on this intercession. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because of this, let us, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
You feel weak. You feel like you don't have it together. Jesus empathizes with that. And because of that, and because of his empathy, and because of his work on the cross, we can turn to him to turn to God. This is what his intercession is. I was recently at a, uh, recently as in, I guess in January or something, which now feels like 80 years ago. I was at a learning conference and a man named David Rose was giving a talk. And he was a student from a rural area of Pennsylvania, I want to say, an area where uh, there weren't many people going on to high-level colleges. And he, almost as a joke, applied to Harvard and got in. And so, of course, you have to go. Uh, and so he went to Harvard, but he was he was uncertain that he belonged there. And the first month or so seemed to just reinforce, I shouldn't be here. He wasn't making doing well in class. He was struggling. And he had decided at the first break, I'm going to leave. I'm going home. I'm not coming back. And so he went to his college counselor, his advisor, and went to sit down and tell him, like, this is, this is the decision I've made. Well, it turns out that that college counselor was the person in charge of admissions. And when David Rose walked in, his college counselor immediately said, David, I've been, I've been following up with what's going on with you and, and all this. And, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about what's going on. Why is it, why are things going to, you know, why are things so hard for you right now? And David told him that I'm not coming back and all this. And his college counselor said, well, David, I'm in charge of the admissions process. And I chose you because I know that you can be successful here. And I didn't make a mistake. And we're going to make sure that you have success here. And he picks up the phone and he's like, who's your, uh, who's your science professor? And David gives him his science professor's name. Like, what's going on? College counselor calls him and says, Hey, uh, Dr. So-and-so, I'm sitting in the room with David Rose, and I know he did poorly on his first test with you. Uh, I'm wondering if you could go over that test with him and give him some opportunities to prove that he can do this. It's very important to me that he succeed here. Are we on the same page? And Dr. So-and-so says, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he goes through the entire list of teachers. He calls each one of them. Well, David Rose graduates from Harvard, succeeds. And that college counselor actually went down uh, to the South to work at a poor school and spent the rest of his life doing that. What David Rose found in that time was intercession, right? Someone who saw his weaknesses and failures, but empathized, spoke highly of, encouraged, equipped, all of those kinds of things. When we were dismissing students to uh, leave the school because of COVID-19, Josh Crane, the head of our school, had a, a meeting with all the students and he mentioned, he said, you know, it's caught my attention that one of you... Um, was making fun of the fact that in one of my messages, I I not only said, here are all the steps we're taking to protect us, but we're also praying fervently. And he thought it was silly that I would communicate that as a as a benefit. He's, and uh, Josh Crane mentioned, he said, listen, you being at the Stony Brook School, one of the benefits is we pray to the Almighty God for you 
to take care of you. We shouldn't make fun of that. Well, we have something greater than some teachers praying for us. We have the Son of God praying for us and interceding for us. Who sees that we are the ones of little faith, but dies for us that his righteousness would be ours. Well, quickly, there's also an alarming part in this, right? Is Jesus says, well, I don't pray for the world. I'm not praying for the world. What is that about? Well, we've already said that the world is rebellion against God. It is rebellion against the moral authority of God. And what Jesus is saying is, I don't support that rebellion. It does not have my support. Only you do. Uh, let me read to you what D.A. Carson says about this. To pray for the world, the created moral order, an active rebellion against God would be blasphemous. There is no hope for the world. There is hope only for some who now constitute the world, but who will cease to be the world and will join those of whom Jesus says, for they are yours. Or if we want to go to the Bible, James says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How is this comforting? The rebellion against God loses. It doesn't have Jesus' support. And thus it fails. And he points out the story of Judas to say, listen, Judas, because the disciples are like, well, what about Judas? What happened there? Right? Couldn't protect him. And Jesus is saying, listen, even one, we knew beforehand that this, that rebellion was going to happen. And two, even the most extreme rebellion against me is folded into my purposes. The day Jesus dies, Satan is rejoicing. The rebellion is like, did we just win? We turn one of his disciples against him. He dies on the cross. And that moment becomes the greatest historical redemptive moment for the entire world. It is the moment on which our hope rests. The moment that looked like the greatest victory for the world order, the world rebellion against Christ. Jesus is saying, you want to take comfort? There is nothing that can overcome my kingdom and my purposes. In fact, the worst things will be folded into my purpose. They will serve my purpose. There is no rebellion against me that succeeds. The application in the warning here is, if you are one who has fought against God, who has turned from God, Jesus does not intercede for the rebellion against him. That is the hard truth. He intercedes for those for whom they say, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? You are the king. So if you're in that boat, you've turned from God, my admonition to you is don't waste any more time. Turn to the king. Submit to the true king who does love you and eagerly desires. It's incredible how receptive God is to any movement towards him. Any movement, knock and you shall find. Uh, any seek and you shall find, knock and you shall enter. Any movement towards God is met with mercy, grace, and a quick response. That's the God we serve. Well, I want to end by looking at this last point. Jesus has been consecrated for us. 
in verse 19, he says, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's like, this isn't just a lot of talk. I'm going to die for you guys. And it's going to purchase access to the throne of God. That's what's going to happen. The rebellion loses because I'm going to defeat it in the cross and in my resurrection. I want to end with this. Andy Crouch said, anxiety is a future without Jesus. We don't have a future without Jesus. We have a future where he's king. This may seem like a weird passage to pick for this moment. But what is the overriding testimony of God throughout the scriptures? The Egyptians show up and the Israelites say, too much, can't handle it. The Philistines show up, too much, can't handle it. The Babylonians, the Romans, and consistently we say, this is too much, can't handle it. Jesus, if you could take care of this, this is our biggest problem. And God, Christ, looks and says, oh, you think you think the Philistines are your biggest problem? You think this storm is the biggest problem? You think this plague is the biggest problem? You think COVID-19 is the biggest problem? And I want to be careful here because I don't want to demean at all what people are going through. And there are real heroes right now fighting in health services and all across the country right now, essential workers doing amazing things that require incredible courage. I do not want to demean that at all. And I don't think Jesus wants to demean that either. But what he's saying and what God is consistently saying is those are the things that God can do away with them like this. They submit to him. The Romans are not a problem for the disciples, right? The rebellion against God is not a problem. Which means that the thing that we should be focused on is not the most alarming thing that's right in front of us. But we have to know that the most important thing is where do we stand as it pertains to God? The most important thing is our sanctification. Thessalonians says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. The will of God has nothing to do with all the context around you. It has to do with your sanctification. So in this time, it can be easy to look at the news every day to get swept up in the next thing and the next thing. The question is that the most important question is not what happens to us. The most important question is, do we cling to God and live out our faith when these things happen? That is the most important question. As Franz Jägerstadter said, I would not exchange my small, dirty cell for a king's palace if I was required to give up even a small part of my faith. Our bond with God must be stronger than our love of our family and relatives. You surely know that we must love God more than we love our family, that we must be ready to let go of everything that we love on this earth that is dear to us rather than to offend the God in the least. Tough times are here, but take heart. Jesus is king. The rebellion loses. And because of that, we can do all sorts of radical things right now. We can give our money away. We can serve others. We can call those people who are lonely down the street. We can pray for those around us. When this thing is over, when COVID-19 is in the rearview mirror, my hope and prayer is that people will look back and say, wow, the church was pretty incredible in that time. And they really did live as those who had a king on the throne. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are king. Thank you for your goodness to us. Be with those who are sick. 
Be with those who are fighting against this sickness. Be with those who are anxious, who are depressed, who are isolated. And for those of us who have the ability to serve, Father, light a fire in us. Help us to see you as king and go forward into battle knowing that the rebellion loses and that you are truly our king. In Jesus' name, amen.